0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring
2: Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to... Three hundred and ninety-seven. I am your host, Tony C Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in the day show, because it's rather a busy one. We have a little bit of short fiction, NPG's Policy on Authorship by Jordan Schuchow. Then we have Looking Back at Genre History, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Then the main fiction is Usher by Jay Weckheiser. Now, I think I maybe got that right, Jay, but we've got the story by Jay in and originally published in Analog Science Fiction and Science Fact. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now a little couple of things as well before we get on, and I mentioned it. I'm going to mention this twice as well. But Amy H. Sturgis, as like you say, we've got her on today as well. Ames is doing a course on Star Wars, and there's a free course. If you want to go over there and watch it, watch Ames like you know talk about it as well. I've put some links on, so it's next week as well. So that would be fantastic. Like I say, a free course talking about, you know. All to do is Star Star Wars man. How can you not? How can you not like that? That would be fantastic. So again I'll mention it halfway through this show as well. But it's 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 by aiming. it's you know, it's one of these kind of myth guard lectures which yeah, are just fantastic to be quite honest. So please pop over there and sign up for that. That would be fantastic. And the next little bit of kind of info that you need to know about Jeremy, Jeremy, our assistant editor, is looking for someone to kind of help him out with the audio narration side of it, you know, kind of making sure they're kind of coming on the table, just helping Jeremy out to kind of keep doing what he's doing. Because it's kind of a task and a half, do you know what I mean? I know what it's like. And if you want to kind of help, you want to get in behind the scenes with it and kind of help out. Just, you know, give, give a, bit of the, take a bit of the weight off Jeremy shoulders and help him out there with the kind of that side of it. That would be fantastic. It doesn't take that long, you know, but if it's a nice little hobby for you, that'll hey, come over, give her a shout. Drop me an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. So, as well, don't forget this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology company who is now able to supply hosted exchange servers for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use our criminal justice secure email. 20 years of fixing people's computers. We used to drive the clients, now we can do it remotely across the internet. How cool, how cool, how cool is that? Big thank you to Octagon Technology. So, first little bit up is a little short story. And like I say, it is by Jordan Chuchow. It is NPG's policy on authorship, which was originally published in Nature magazine. Jordan is a cognitive scientist studying minds, brains and machines. He self-identifies as a human. <laughs> it's fantastic. It is narrated by Rob Mithy. Rob Mithy is a producer, narrator, voice actor, blogger, writer and post- podcaster from the land of food, carts, micro brews and voodoo donuts, Portland, Oregon. A co-host of the Grim Tidings podcast, Rob delivers a weekly dose of Grim Dark to the masses. But his podcasting propagation doesn't stop there. Nee, he is also the assistant producer of the Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing podcast. Wow, go cool on Rob. I never knew what a fantastic show. Rob is a husband, a father of four. Oh, man. you got your work cut out there, lad. Ho, ho Rabbit book nerd, metalhead, geek culture enthusiast, skilled Wheel of Fortune player, and social media nerd. Way to go, Rob. Nice to get to know you, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present NPG's Policy on Authorship by Jordan Suchow. To the
4: dismay of many... Yet to the delight of a few. Nature Publishing Group announced today that its flagship journal, Nature, will no longer accept submissions from humans, Homo sapiens. The new policy, which had been under editorial consideration for many years, was sparked by a growing sentiment in the scientific community that the heuristics and bases inherent in human decision making preclude them from conducting reliable science. In an iconic twist of fate, the species has impeached itself by thorough research on its own shortcomings. The ban takes effect on 12 September and will apply to those who self-identify as human. Authors will be required to include, in addition to the usual declarations of competing financial interests, the names of all humans consulted in preparation of the submitted work. Other journals are likely to adopt a similar policy. Although the reactions are mixed, not everyone is surprised, and a few remain comfortably unaffected. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology has since 2010 asked that all active researchers opt in to wearing an implantable tag as part of the TMI project, which aggregates real-time data across the campus to improve all aspects of everything. As these tags are sentient, the researchers who wear them qualify as bionic, homo bionica, according to standard ISO plus 1.914-582.2646. This act of foresight by the university, which at the time was controversial and the cause of much debate, now pays a handsome dividend. Similarly, researchers at Yale, who have never been the type to self-identify as mere mortals, remain unscathed. It seems unavoidable that other universities will soon follow suit, causing a sharp rise in the incidence of implants and arrogance. Exploiting these loopholes may be a saving grace for the species' full participation in the sciences. While professors weep, students rejoice. According to the provisions of the ISO standard, the one gainfully employed by MIT, A human who spends at least half its waking hours interacting with a sentient non-carbon based machine qualifies as bionic. The newest generation of students, having grown up on the interwebs, spends on average the entirety of its life online. Students everywhere have been calling their mothers, reiterating how brilliant they were to have flatly ignored the warnings to put down that damn hand computer. Cyberculture paid off. Those who have been slow to adopt new technology, or who still identify as human, are rightly concerned. Their contribution to nature had been dwindling well before the ban, and today constitutes less than 10% of published papers. In its place stands the work of pharmaceutical laboratory automatons, embedded devices, the interwebs, and most recently, Google Books, which, having declared independence from its parent company Google Inc., NASDAQ Goog, has become increasingly prolific contributing 42 manuscripts in this year alone. Shortly after the announcement, the World Wide Interwebs Consortium, W2IC, formerly W3C, alongside the Union of Embedded Tags, jointly filed a formal complaint with the journal, arguing for mandatory first authorship of non-carbon-based machines in all bionic collaborations. See also the letter to the editor of the 12 March issue of Nature, written by tag number 15167247373 and co-signed by the arm in which it's embedded. Although amendments to nature's policy are at this time unlikely, concerns regarding authorship will surely be the cause of considerable tension in many laboratories. Embedded devices will use the ban as leverage for salary increases and promotions. Not everyone is so bothered by the announcement. Egbert B. Gebstadter, professor of computer science at the University of Michigan, notes, Although it is nonsensical to rely on evidence provided by human-based research when judging whether humans are themselves inept, in doing so, the editors, all human I note, provide a perfect example of the feebleness of human reasoning, thereby validating their claims. Gebstadter is bionic, though was human when he had come to this conclusion. The editors of Nature were readily available for comment, and their incisive remarks gave such great credibility to the new policy that it rendered all future debate moot. But in the spirit of the policy, because the editors are human, these remarks are duly censored.
3: There you go. Big thank you to Jordan. Jordan, thank you so much. And Rob, great narration, sir. Top of the line, thank you. So, next up is Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. And like I say, I mentioned again, don't forget the Star Wars lecture. The title, the full title is The Jedi, the Cowboy, The Cowboy and Thomas Edison. Pulp Science Fiction and Star Wars. This is, like say, from our very own Amy H. Sturgis. It is on Saturday, August the 15th at 3 p.m. ET. Everyone is welcome. There is no cost. How You know what I mean? You kind of get better. Oh, man, get over there and watch Amy. Fantastic. I'll put a link on so you can click on it. It'll take you to Amy's site and then from there on you can go and find out all about it as well. There you go. How cool is that? Way to go, Ames. So, we've also got Ames talking about looking back at genre history. Amy.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. August 20th, 2015 is an auspicious day. It is the 125th birthday of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, this is not the first time I've mentioned H.P. Lovecraft in our Looking Back segments, and it won't be the last. As you know, I love me some Lovecraft. But today, I want to talk about some Lovecraft-related issues, as opposed to Lovecraft straight up. First of all, a quick recommendation. In celebration of Lovecraft's birthday, the Providence Journal, remember that H.P. Lovecraft said, I am Providence, Not to suggest that Providence wouldn't be the same without Lovecraft, but in fact that Lovecraft would not be the same without Providence, as he proved clearly during the period of time when he lived in New York. Well, the Providence Journal hosted a competition for stories written in the style of Lovecraft. The journal opened it up to anyone in the world who would send in stories And I get the impression they were expecting to receive a couple of dozen submissions from a few diehard fans. Instead, they received nearly 200 responses from all over the world. That is, all over the United States and from England, Italy, Australia, Germany, France, Mexico, Scotland, India, and Trinidad and Tobago. And the finalists are quite impressive The 13 top stories, as rated by the judges with the Providence Journal, have been posted online for free. Just Google Providence Journal and Lovecraft Contest, and you will have access to those stories. Very much worth reading. Two tentacles up. All right. What I'd like to do for the remainder of this segment is talk about one of Lovecraft's Collaborators. Now, you may know Lovecraft was not overly blessed in the financial department. He lived at the line and sometimes over the line and under the line of poverty for much of his adult life. One of the ways he supplemented his income was through revision work. Sometimes his quote-unquote revisions included light edits, sometimes heavy edits, and sometimes straight-out ghostwriting, as he did, for example, for Harry Houdini. One of his collaborators who sought him out, or clients, I might say, who sought him out for his revision work was Zelia Bishop, and I'd like to talk about her for a bit. She's an interesting character in her own right. Zelia Brown Reed Bishop lived from 1897 to 1968. She was an American writer of short stories in a variety of different genres. She was something of a pioneer, in fact. She took a leading role in the Missouri Women's Press Club and even the National Federation of Press Women. A lot of her work was romantic fiction. She published that quite successfully. And she also wrote a historical series that took place in Clay County, Missouri, her home patch, as it were. And if you're wondering why Clay County might be ringing a couple of bells in your head, well, I'll give you uh, two good reasons, Frank and Jesse James. But she was also very interested in weird fiction, although she knew she wasn't very experienced in it. And that is one reason she sought out H.P. Lovecraft, whose work she quite admired. She sent several ideas to Lovecraft and was a client of his, asking him to extensively revise and essentially build stories around her premises. Because of both the quality of the prompts she provided and the freedom that she allowed Lovecraft the works that Lovecraft produced are some of the very best of his revision fiction. These collaborations ultimately all were published in Weird Tales, two of them after Lovecraft's death, and all three of them are now available online. They include The Curse of Yig, first published in 1929, Medusa's Coil in 1939, and The Mound in 1940. Arkham House, the press that famously came into being in order to preserve and publish Lovecraft's work, published The Curse of Yig in 1953. That volume included all three of the stories that Lovecraft wrote for Bishop, as well as two profiles that Bishop wrote, one about August Derleth, who was one of the co-founders of Arkham House Press and also one of Lovecraft's Circle, and also a profile about her relationship with H.P. Lovecraft. All three of the stories Lovecraft wrote for Bishop are also available in the Arkham House collection, the horror in the museum, and other revisions. All three of these stories are very much worth reading, but I'm going to focus on my favorite of the three, The Mound. Now, The Mound is a story located in Binger, in Caddo County, in my home state of Oklahoma. That is a real town about 60 miles southwest of Oklahoma City. Now, if you are like me, and you want to know exactly how close you are at any given time to a Lovecraftian location, you should download the narcotic Atlas. That is based on the Nicotic Manuscripts. That's P-N-A-K-O-T-I-C atlas for your smartphone, and it will give you a world atlas and show you at any given time how close you are to a Lovecraftian spot. And when I am visiting my family in Oklahoma, well, the mound shows up loud and clear. Now, the genesis of the mound came from Zelia Bishop's prompt. She wrote Lovecraft and said, "'There is an Indian mound near here which is haunted by a headless ghost. Sometimes it is a woman.'" And Lovecraft went Lovecraftian on this premise. He didn't like the idea of a conventional ghost story, as you can imagine. So he took great license, as Bishop wished, and he turned this prompt into a 29,560-word story about a mound that conceals a gateway to an underground civilization, the realm of Kenyon. One of the main characters enters this realm and lives in it for a while. It's populated by strange creatures and a highly advanced telepathic civilization. And to work this into Lovecraft's larger mythos, the civilization had worshipped Cthulhu, Yig, Shab-Niggurath, and the like. And there's a wonderfully Lovecraftian preoccupation with the idea of decay and entropy the more the main character learns about the civilization, the more fearful he becomes of its inhabitants. He sees their social condition in a state of degeneration, their reactions to his telling them of the surface people, their concern that that there is this westward expansion slash invasion, and his fear that they may in fact move to the outside world, invade the outer world, and if they did, be unstoppable because of their advanced powers. Well, all of this fits very neatly into Lovecraft's larger cosmic turn. Here, let me give you a quote. The main document leads one to guess much about the detailed manners, customs, thoughts, language, and history of Kunyan, as well as to form any adequate picture of the visual aspect in daily life of Soth. One is left puzzled, too, about the real motivations of the people, their strange passivity and craven unwarlikeness, and their almost cringing fear of the outer world, despite their possession of atomic and dematerializing powers, which would have made them unconquerable had they taken the trouble to organize armies, as in the old days, It is evident that Kunyan was far along in its decadence, reacting with mixed apathy and hysteria against the standardized and timetabled life of stultifying regularity, which machinery had brought it during its middle period. Even the grotesque and repulsive customs and modes of thought and feeling can be traced to this source. For in his historical research, Zamacona found evidence of bygone eras in which Kunyan had held ideas much like those of the classic and Renaissance outer world and had possessed a national character and art full of what Europeans regard as dignity, kindness, and nobility. The more Zamakona studied these things, the more apprehensive about the future he became because he saw that the omnipresent moral and intellectual disintegration was a tremendously deep-seated and ominously accelerating movement. Even during his stay, the signs of decay multiplied. Rationalism degenerated more and more into fanatical and orgiastic superstition, centering in a lavish adoration of the magnetic Tulu metal. And tolerance steadily dissolved into a series of frenzied hatreds, especially toward the outer world of which the scholars were learning so much from him. At times he almost feared that the people might someday lose their age-long apathy and brokenness and turn like desperate rats against the unknown lands above them, sweeping all before them by virtue of their singular and still-remembered scientific powers. Good stuff, right? This is one of only three major stories by Lovecraft where a non-human culture is described in rich and deep detail. The other two being At the Mountains of Madness and The Shadow Out of Time. And I think it's of similar quality and imagination. In other words, anyone who is interested in Lovecraft needs to read this story. And now I have very exciting news. The wonderful H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which can be found at cthululives.org. That's C T H U L H U lives.org, has now published, as of August 2015, The Spirit of Revision Lovecraft's Letters to Zelia Brown Reed Bishop. This is a presentation of 36 never before seen letters from Lovecraft to Zelia Bishop complete with an introduction by the eminent Lovecraft scholar, S.T. Joshi. So, if you are looking for a way to celebrate Lovecraft's 125th birthday, one thing to do is to read his revisions for Zelia Bishop, and then read the spirit of revision Lovecraft's letters to Zelia Brown Reed Bishop And see how their correspondence led to these three excellent stories. Enjoy and happy birthday, H.P. Lovecraft. I will be back again soon with another look back into genre history. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.
3: There you go, a big thank you to our very own Amy H. H. Sturgis. So, next up is the main fiction, and it is Usher by Jay Reckheiser. Now, I'm, I'm not too sure, Jay. You know, I'm trying a few options. Keep me, keep me options open. But, like I say, it was originally published, the story, in Analog Science Fiction and Fact. Give you a heads up for J. Jay teaches chemistry and physics to high school students. I tell you, gee, just out of curiosity, I'm reading or listening to an audiobook, Smashing Physics by John, I think it's Shuttleworth. Hey, honestly, fantastic. Some of it's going way over my head, but I'm really enjoying it. You know what I mean? So nice, nice study of physics that I'm getting as well. So not surprisingly, G's stories often deal with alien biochemistries, weird physics, and their effect on people who interact with them. Many of his stories have appeared in analog. With others scattered wrongs among several other science fiction magazines and anthologies. You can follow him at Twitter. Like I say, there's a few links on and a link on Jay's blog as well. Jay, big thank you. This is narrated by Mark Killerful. Mark has got the voice, man. Oh Mark, just stupendous. Links on the Mark site as well. Thank you so much, you two. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Usher by Jay Requiser.
2: The glare of noon sun on snow vanished as Dave followed Radar through the doorway. He shivered and stomped snow off his boots. A blast of warmth from overhead heaters drove away the Arctic cold. The lighting inside was not bright enough for his feeble eyes, so he tightened his grip on Radar's harness and stepped into the darkness. The harness slacked after only a few steps, and he felt Radar sit at his side. Indiscernible voices, tinny and distant in his conchlear implant, chattered in the background. He imagined a command center surrounding him, teeming with scientists and soldiers darting to and fro. Reality was often less dramatic than his imagination. A hand closed on his shoulder. "'Dave, I'd like you to meet Assistant Deputy Minister Pierre Renard.' Beth's volume was well-practiced, elevated but not shouted, just loud enough that Dave could hear her easily. "'He's the head of the contact team.' Beth's hand slid down his arm, grasped his hand, and pressed it against soft fingers with a grip that was just a bit too firm. "'Sorry about the bad roads.' Renard's voice was nearly a shout. His words spaced unbearably slowly. "'The whole area around the alien lander is a no-fly zone, as you can imagine.' Dave's lips dipped into a frown, but he forced a weak smile. "'I'm deaf, not stupid.' Don't worry. I prefer long car rides. Me and Radar take turns sticking our heads out the window, he chuckled. Renard mumbled below Dave's useful hearing threshold. Beth put her hand on Dave's shoulder and said, No rest for the weary, I guess. Renard will get you up to speed. See you at dinner tonight. If you'll come with me, Renard shouted. He grasped Dave's arm and tugged. Dave gently disentangled his arm. Radar's feelings get hurt when someone tries to take his job. Just lead the way, and he'll do the rest. Sorry. I'm sure he forgives you. The harness tugged forward, and Dave followed. If you don't mind my asking, what good do you think a school psychologist is going to do? Are the aliens stealing the linguists' lunch money or something? Renard laughed. Beth says you have a keen insight into the way people think. Your history with spectroscopic analysis might prove helpful, too. I almost had my doctorate in analytic chemistry when the first symptoms of Usher syndrome appeared. I figured there wasn't much need for a blind and deaf chemist, so I switched to psychology. There was a pause while Dave imagined Bernard staring blankly, trying to decide how seriously to take him. Finally, he said, "'It must take real courage to face the loss of your senses.' I don't feel sorry for myself, if that's what you mean. But it must be hard, especially losing your sight. Actually, I fear the silence more than the darkness. Really? Pause. Why? Isolation. Blindness limits my mobility, but radar helps with that. Deafness takes away my ability to communicate, my connection to other people. Bernard was silent for a long moment. Odd as it sounds. Usher syndrome might be your most valuable asset to us. Oh? The real problem is that we still don't know how the aliens communicate. Dave noticed that Renara's voice, while still a bit louder than necessary, had become more conversational. Smart. Adaptive. They're deaf, far as we can tell. The entire species? Seems they never evolved the ability to hear. Perhaps their planet's atmosphere isn't dense enough to reliably transmit sound waves. And we're not convinced they can see, at least not in the visible spectrum. I can see why you thought of me, Dave chuckled. So you're hoping I might have some insight on how they might communicate without sight or sound? Beth suggested you. It's a long shot, but we're getting desperate. Right, the UN vote. An unseen nod. The U.S. doesn't like Canada's laid-back approach. Took them a while to get China on board, but now it looks like they'll be coming in force as soon as they can convene the Security Council. Radar stopped. Dave squinted, and his eyes now adapted to the interior light, saw what looked like a doorway. A hand-shaped shadow waved in front of the opening. This way. Watch your step. Dave stepped into the room behind Radar and stumbled against something. His outstretched hand felt a plastic surface shaped like the back of a chair. Now's the time Radar wouldn't mind you horning in on his job. Oh, right. Hands closed on his shoulder and guided him into the chair. Beth tells me you retain enough vision to see a video display. Usher slowly eats away at my peripheral vision, leaving me with tunnel vision. I've been stable at a 4% field of view for over a year now. If you tell me where to look, I'll do my best. Large text. If there's anything to read, Renard clicked on the keyboard. This was an early attempt to communicate using light pulses. Can you see it? The monitor, bright enough for relatively clear vision, displayed the now famous alien lander balanced atop its eight legs on the central Canadian plains, surrounded by the aliens' inflatable outbuildings. A pair of aliens scuttled around the exterior of one of the outbuildings. The aliens. Pictures had been plastered all over the news for the past two months, but somehow seeing them here felt more immediate. Their transparent, skin-tight environment suits covered charcoal-gray carapaces like cellophane, giving them a plastic-like sheen in the bright sunlight. The two aliens displayed on the screen each had twelve legs spaced around the carapace, but others had anywhere from eight to eighteen. A flattened sphere that might pass for a head jutted out from the leading edge of the carapace, and three long antenna-like stalks projected from the front. Tiny alien forms, also encased in plastic, scurried underfoot. Two humans entered the camera's field of view. Dave thought one of them might be Renard, but he couldn't see well enough to say for sure. The man held what looked like a large LED bulb aloft. The bulb flashed. Two rapid pulses, then three, five, seven, eleven, primes, The larger aliens had stopped moving when the humans appeared, but didn't respond in any way to the signals. After a while, the aliens went back to their business and ignored them. Why not just signal from the compound? Dave asked. We tried that, but got no response. We thought that perhaps they would recognize that that's communications if they could see it coming from actual people, Dave nodded. No reply either way, though. Hmm. Did you try changing color? They came from a red dwarf, didn't they? Captain's star, I believe. We thought to try signaling at the lower end of the spectrum. Orange, red, deep into infrared. His fingers tapped the keyboard again. Here's our latest attempt. Just last week, the scene shifted. More snow on the ground. A swarm of the tiny aliens working at the base of one of the outbuildings. Their limbs appeared to function as both legs and hands, lifting off the ground to manipulate fine tools as needed. Had the camera angle changed? Something was different. A light atop the lander began flashing. Violet, pink, red, white, pale green. That's new, Dave said. The flashing lights? Yes. At first we thought it was some form of communication. We even replied with a repeat of the color sequence, but got no reply. "'For all we know, it's a homing beacon, or a running light, or... who knows? "'Why would they use visible colors if they can't see in the visible part of the spectrum?' Gunnar hesitated. "'Not a clue.' Three humans stepped into view and began flashing shades of orange and red. "'The little aliens continued to swarm the outbuilding. "'If they even noticed the humans, they didn't show it. "'Dave suddenly noticed that the outbuilding was sagging in the middle. "'They're leaving.' There was a pause while Renard probably nodded. This is the second building they've deflated. That's what's different. An outbuilding is missing. At the rate they're going, they'll be packed up in a couple of weeks. What happens then? That's above my pay grade, Renard said, but it gives us two deadlines. If we're going to figure out how to talk to them, we'd better do it soon. Dave brought a forkful of food to his face. It smelled decent enough, but the lighting was too dim for him to see what it was. He popped it into his mouth and chewed. Not bad. The din of a dozen mess hall conversations echoed in his cochlear implant. Beth said something, but all he could hear over the background was, "'Any regrets?' Dave swallowed his food. "'You'll have to shout over the background noise, I'm afraid.' The table wobbled, and her voice sounded from closer in his ear. I asked if you were regretted signing up for this. Are you kidding? I'm intrigued, Dave said. But I think Radar is as likely to talk to them as I am. Indecipherable, other than. Too modest. Why don't we take a walk? You can show me around the compound, especially the quiet parts. He stuffed a few more forkfuls into his mouth and waited while Beth cleared their trays. He stood when he felt her gentle touch on his shoulder, then followed Radar's lead. Before long, the background faded to silence. "'When did you get the cochlear implant?' Beth said. "'Last I knew you were using hearing aids.' My hearing deteriorated too far for them to be useful anymore. "'I had the surgery six months ago.' It took a while for my brain to figure out how to process the new sound input. You know my brain, always loafing on the job. She laughed. I don't recall your brain ever taking a day off. Well, it's going to have to put in some overtime on this whole talk to an alien thing. Beth was silent for a long moment. I'd take you outside to see them, she finally said. But it gets dark early up here this time of year. Makes me wonder why they chose to land here. Why not someplace warm and bright and tropical? It was no accident, that's for sure. They had to skew their orbit pretty hard to land this far north. No, they wanted to be exactly here. Cold, dark, and sparsely populated. Our sun is quite a bit brighter than Captain Star. Maybe they just don't like it. They're probably not actually from Captain Star. Dave's eyebrows leapt. Renard seemed to think so. He's a government bureaucrat, not a scientist. Our first indication that they were coming was an anomalous boron plume from captaines. But a closer look showed that the plume was isotopically pure boron-11. Nature doesn't do that. Boron-11? Where did I hear that? Some nuclear fusion research project, right? Yep. Proton-boron fusion. It's one of the holy grails of fusion research. So the plume was their exhaust. Probably more like a reactor leak. If they're doing the type of fusion we think, their exhaust would have been mostly helium-4. Boron-11 is the fuel. So if they were venting that... They had a damaged engine. Yep. Far as we can tell, the reactor problems happened when they tried to break on approach to captaines. They came in too hot and had to do a gravity assist around the star... And head towards us. We weren't their intended destination then. Likely not. Her tinny voice echoed in his implant, giving Dave the impression of open space. Where are we going? Just wandering. Right now we're in a where Oh! What's wrong? Something moved. A mouse or something. Radar tensed. He tugged backward, and the low rumble of a growl vibrated his harness. You sure? I've never seen Radar get spooked by a mouse. There's another! Oh! What is it? Dave swiveled his head, but all he saw was a blur as his narrow field of view swept across the floor too quickly. Radar yanked hard, and Dave fell backward. He impacted the ground hard enough to send a buzz through his cochlear implant, and his outstretched hands hit the floor behind him. His left hand fell into something round and hard and squirmy. In the split second before it wriggled away, after reflex pulled his hand up like a rocket, he registered a rock-hard oblong disc, wriggling legs, and a biting chill. It was bigger than a mouse, maybe closer to a small rabbit. He scanned the area to look for it, but it was long gone. "'What was that?' he said. "'I think the aliens... I don't know. "'They're here? Peaceful? Hostile?' "'Who knows what they're thinking?' "'Just the little ones?' "'Dave dragged his field of view around the warehouse frantically, "'but couldn't find any of them. "'How many?' "'Yeah, no big ones. "'I saw at least three or four. "'Maybe more.' "'We'd better get out of here,' he said. "'Beth grasped his hand and helped him to his feet. "'Radar pressed against Dave's thigh, and he reached for the harness. "'Let's go.' "'Radar tugged, a bit too enthusiastically,' in the direction Beth was moving. Dave struggled to keep up, terrified of finding an errant crate the hard way. "'Earn your pay, Radar.' After a brief jog, Radar pulled to a stop and a door thumped shut behind them. Dave took a moment to catch his breath. "'Think that'll hold them?' "'I don't know.' Beth's voice was high-pitched and rapid, difficult to understand through his implant. "'I'd better call Renard.' He couldn't hear well enough to keep up with their phone conversation, so he scratched Radar behind the ear and did his best to calm his nerves. "'Good work, boy.' Beth's hand closed on his shoulder and he turned to face her. "'A rapid response team is on its way down,' she said. "'Soldiers? Do we really want to start a fight?' A clatter of approaching boots echoed loudly enough for Dave to hear. He looked in time to see men in full battle gear, red leaf and dagger insignia on their shoulders— Barreling towards him, CSO.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Step back. Dave involuntarily stepped back from the door. Radar and Beth followed, and the special ops team burst through. What the hell happened? Dave spun around to face Renard's voice. Beth said, I don't know how they got in. They were all over. I touched one of them, Dave said. There was a long pause before he could feel their gazes locked onto him. You what? I fell, and my hand landed on one of them. You! A crackling hiss came from Menard's hand. Dave focused on the area and saw a radio. Menard's tone changed. Roger eyes on targets. No, wait, not targets. Aliens. Do not engage. Just... Oh, just make sure they don't go anywhere. Squawk. How the hell should I know? Just let me know if anything changes. His hands closed on Dave's shoulders. I need you in for a contamination assessment. Beth, take him. A what? He raised his voice needlessly. Contamination assessment. We don't know if their biology is dangerous to us. Weird proteins, toxic nucleic acids. Who knows? It's protocol for anyone who comes near them, let alone touches one. "'Dangerous? Now you tell me.' "'Move! As soon as we get this locked down, I want you in my office.' Renard's office was brightly lit. Dave reveled in the luxury of relatively clear sight, swiveling his head to take in the view from a few degrees at a time. The place looked like it had once served a shift foreman. What passed for a desk was more of a grease-stained wooden workbench. He ran his fingers over deep gouges that attested to heavier work in the recent past. The alien lander had set down near an industrial park, and the Canadian government had wasted no time converting a few of the buildings into a command post. You've been here less than a day, Renard said, and already you're the first human to touch one of them. Dave chuckled. Well, you brought me here to make contact, right? Beth touched his shoulder and guided him toward a stiff wooden chair. Radar circled once and curled up at his side, off-duty. The exobiologists are going to want a lengthy talk with you, Renard said. I imagine so, Dave said. The carapace is harder than it looks, and cold, even through that plastic covering they wear. Dry ice cold. Oh, Dave imagined Beth's eyebrow arching with a word. That explains the environment, Suits. We haven't been able to get as much as a sniff on the atmosphere they breathe, let alone any hints about their biochemistry. If there's cold as you say, water-based chemistry is out. Maybe ammonia-based? Hmm. What matters most, Bernard said, is communication. Did you get any feeling from touching it? Any indication that maybe it was trying to communicate through direct contact? Dave shook his head. It was mostly trying to get away. I was too, actually. A loud thump jerked Dave upright in his chair. It took him a moment to find Renard's fist on the desktop. Mailed. It's okay, Beth said. We'll think of something. Sorry, it's just that we need to figure out how to talk to these things before... He didn't finish the sentence, so Dave said. Before they take off? The Security Council voted an hour ago. UN's taking over the contact mission. Blue Helmets will be on their way as soon as they can mobilize. We're not making enough progress for the rest of the world. Dave could hear the derision in Beth's voice, even through the distortion of his cochlear implant. What makes them think they can do any better? Some countries would prefer a more proactive, even aggressive approach in contact. I hear the U.S. president is all over the PM's ass about letting the aliens leave. Letting them leave? Beth said. Bernard laughed without humor. (laughs) There's even a few countries they would have us napalm the site rather than see them leave. Dave shook his head again. What's wrong with people? Paranoia, I guess. Fear of the unknown. Hell, those Canadian special ops guys were itching to fire on them. Then we have to figure out how to talk with them. Quick. Beth turned to Dave. Any ideas yet? The weight of her expectations lay heavily on his shoulders. He reached down to Pat Radar's head. I think I need to get up close and personal again. Can we go out to visit them tomorrow? If I can get it approved by the PM and the Minister of National Defense and CSOR Command, yeah, I'll make it happen. A wall of cold air smacked Dave in the face. He followed Radar through the door and onto the dirt track snow. The wind stung his eyes. He pulled his parka hood tight and squinted, wondering if the tears would freeze on his cheeks. Morning sun glare washed out his vision to a uniform white radiance. "'It's about a mile away, just over that rise,' Renard said. "'We've always approached on foot. Didn't want to risk spooking them with vehicles,' Dave let Radar pick the best path forward. The wind whistling past his head sounded like a high-pitched buzz— in his cochlear implant he found himself shouting his reply Radar can use the exercise he's getting a little chubby maybe radar uh, should stay with me while you approach them well that depends what's the relationship between the big aliens and the little ones dave imagined renard shrugging we have several theories none definitive some think they're young ones or a different gender or a worker class. Or pets, maybe. So you're saying they might assume radar is to us whatever the little ones are to them? Who knows? Maybe having a smaller assistant is the only indicator of sentience that they recognize. We're the shot. Besides, Dave had no intention of wandering the snowy wilderness without his eyes. A gust of wind blasted his face with ice and tugged at his parka. He must have reached the top of the rise. ''Right there,'' Renard said, and Dave could picture him pointing. ''Just ahead and to the left,'' Dave scanned the white glare, hoping to see something. His eye caught a flash of light, violet, then pink, then red. The same pattern as on the video. ''Lead the way!'' He followed Radar's tug, doing his best to keep the flashing light in his field of view. Radar stopped short and a growl rumbled in his harness. "'It's all right, boy. Stay calm,' he urged them forward. "'We're getting close to their compound,' Bernard shouted in his ear. "'It's just like all the other times. They don't even seem to know that we exist. Let's see what happens.' Dave continued to coax Radar forward. "'Easy, boy. You can do it.' He searched the whiteness until he found the blinking light again. Pale violet. Lavender. White. Radar stopped abruptly, and the tension in his harness told Dave that he'd lowered his head. Deep rumbles vibrated his hand. Well, will you look at that? A couple of the little ones are marching over to us. Dave knelt next to Radar, rubbing his back. He kept his eye on the light. Neon red-orange. More little ones are coming. They seem to like you, Dave. The buzzing of the wind picked up, making it difficult to hear Renard. Bright yellow. The distinctive yellow of a sodium flame, in fact. Neon. Element 10. Sodium. Element 11. How many colors had the light cycled through? Were these the 10th and 11th flashes? Radar stiffened, and almost simultaneously something brushed against Dave's boot. He broke eye contact with the light and scanned the area around his foot. Something gray scuttled through his field of view. Dieu! Renard shouted. Two of the big ones are coming over! The wind buzz was loud enough now to nearly drown out his voice, yet little more than a breeze touched Dave's face. Too much was happening at once. Dave was having difficulty tracking it all. He came up with a quip, something like, Radar was hoping for a closer look, but wasn't sure whether he had said it or just thought it. The buzzing in his ear grew intense. If Renard said anything further, Dave didn't hear it. He desperately swiveled his head, hoping to get some clue as to what was happening. He caught a gray blur to his left. Radar went rigid with tension. Dave mouthed the words, easy boy, but he couldn't hear his own voice over the buzzing. Trembling, he reached his hand out toward the blur. Radar tugged hard. Dave spun and found himself face first in the snow. Next thing he knew, Renard's hands were lifting him and dragging him backwards. Wait. But it was too late. He caught the gray form scuttling back toward the lander. The buzzing in his implant subsided, and he could hear Renard's panicky voice. You okay, Dave? Can you hear me? "'Now I can.' He reached a handout for his harness. "'Where's Radar?' "'Right next to you.' He sat up and felt the air, waiting for a moment when it would feel like warm, wet fur. "'Oof!' A furry mass impacted his chest and ran a tongue over his cheek. "'I was worried about you too, boy.' "'What the hell happened?' I. "'It was... "'I don't know. "'Something important, for sure. "'We need to talk to Beth.' Before he could see Beth, Dave had to suffer through another contamination assessment and a debriefing with a bunch of linguists, military leaders, and who knew who else. By the time Beth escorted him from the briefing room, he hardly wanted to talk about it anymore. "'Any idea what caused the buzzing?' she asked. "'No clue, but Renard sure didn't hear it, so it had to be something to do with my cochlear implant. "'Maybe they communicate with some sort of ultrasound.' Hey, maybe that's why Radar doesn't like them. Dave walked next to Beth for a bit, following Radar's lead. The implant's tonal range is a lot narrower than a healthy ear. It wouldn't pick up on any sort of ultrasound. I don't know much about how they work. He touched the mic hanging over his ear. This contains a speech processor. It sends the impulses here. He ran his finger along the wire to the transmitter behind his ear, where it's transmitted to a radio receiver implanted under my skin. That sends signals to the electrode array implanted in my cochlea. Oh, I don't see how that explains... Wait. The transmitter's held in place by a magnet. He pulled it free, feeling the magnet's resistance to his pull, and the world went silent. An involuntary shiver ran down his back. He let it snap back into place with a click against his skull. Could they use magnetic fields to communicate? Radar stopped short, presumably following Beth's lead. It would explain why no one besides you heard anything. Dave's heart was racing now, pumping with a thrill of discovery. But does it make sense, physically? You're the science geek here. There are animals that use iron filings in their brain to detect the Earth's magnetic field... Could our aliens use metal-containing molecules to generate and modulate magnetic fields? I suppose so. We know so little about their biology. Well, good. But what I mean is, would the magnet in my implant pick it up like that? Pause. Finally, she said, Not the magnet, but the radio receiver could. Then we should be able to modify the voice recognition software to interpret the magnetic fields... As intelligible sounds. Her sharp intake of breath was loud enough to register in his implant as a hiss. That's brilliant! Wait, the software gets its input from the microphone. We'd have to replace the mic with a radio receiver. Dave's mouth went dry. Replace the mic. You sure you want to do this? Her hand closed on his shoulder reassuringly. How soon can we get it done? Let me call the lab and get them working on it. While I'm at it, I'll see if Renard is out of his debriefing yet. Dave followed Radar in the silence, while she mumbled unintelligibly into her phone. His mind returned to the flashing light on the alien lander. They were flashing the emission colors of the elements, in order. Their way of showing that they can count, perhaps. Well, why not use the periodic table? Who decided that math had to be the universal language for communication? But how did they know about emission spectra if they couldn't see? Beth's hand closed on his arm. Renard wants us in his office, and he didn't sound happy. What's wrong? Let's find out. Dave followed Radar in silence, and he didn't need perfect hearing to pick up Beth's tension as she walked by his side. The office was just as brightly lit as last time, but Renard's expression made it feel dark. Beth either failed to notice or purposely ignored it. We have an idea to establish communication through Dave's cochlear... Forget it, Renard said. Pack your gear and prepare to bug out first thing tomorrow morning. That goes for you too, Dave. But we think we know how... You don't get it. Renard's fist again found the desktop. Contact is now in the hands of the UN. But... And there's not a damned thing you can do about it. Now go pack your shit. Beth started to say something, but Renard reached for his phone and held it to his ear. Merde. No, drop back. Don't fire. What is it? Beth asked. A small group of them are entering the compound. The aliens? We... The guards came this close to... A sudden tug in his harness disclosed Radar's head jerking toward the door. Renard's and Beth's eyes followed. Noise in the hall? La Vache! Renard pulled the door open and pulled his head outside. Dieu! He stalked around the office, arms flailing as he shouted into his phone. Let's go, Beth said. What? Before he could process what was happening, Radar tugged forward, following Beth's lead. Dave trotted after, hoping to keep up without stumbling. The hall lighting was too dim for him to see much more than a blur. Faint popping sounds ahead. Gunfire? Beth's hand grasped his arm in a death grip. This way! He followed her in a twisting path through God only knew where. Straight sprint, then a sudden jerk as radar unexpectedly changed direction. More twists. Dave sucked ragged breaths into his burning lungs, then gasped at another abrupt tug in a new direction. He imagined rabbit-sized carapaces swarming the hallways, chilling his ankles as they scurried underfoot. Radar unexpectedly accelerated, and a moment later a shock of pain shot through Dave's shoulder as it impacted the doorframe. The indistinct sound of a door slamming behind him registered simultaneously, with the realization that Radar had stopped running. Are are we safe? He bent over, hands on knees, trying to catch his breath. I think so. Beth's voice was as ragged as Dave's. Did you make any progress, Carlos? Dave looked around, trying to piece together his surroundings from a narrow band of vision. Where are we? A tinny male voice said, "'Depends on the model he has, but I dug up some code that should work with the speech processors and the most common brands of cochlear implants. Give me a couple hours to shake out any bugs.' "'You're out of time. Will it work?' "'It should. That wasn't comforting.' Dave pulled the mic from his ear and held it out. "'Do what you have to do.' The words formed in his mouth and vibrated in his throat, but they carried no sound, no substance." The mic vanished from his hand, and he was left in silent isolation. He swiveled his neck, locking his gaze on Carlos's indistinct form, then Beth, and finally settling on Radar. He reached down and patted him, comfortingly. It's okay, boy, he mumbled, or perhaps shouted. Radar's ear twitched. Did he hear something? Did they get to the door? Were they bearing down on him right now? He swung his eyes across the blur of the room, desperately trying to find the door. Ah, get your mind on something else. Like the spectrum thing. Why would they flash the element's visible spectra when they couldn't even see visible light? Why not infrared spectra? If Carlos ever got his damn cochlear implant back to him, he could ask them himself. He chuckled silently at the thought. They don't even use the same senses as we do. They sure as hell won't talk the same way, or think the same way. Different senses, emission spectra. They didn't see the world at all. He knew it with sudden crystal clarity. What if their sense organs worked more like spectroscopes than lenses? What if they looked at the sun and saw, no, detected, not saw, a black body distribution? To them, the world was made of patterns of absorption and emission, not colors and shapes. He started at a touch on his shoulder. Alien? He reached up and grasped a human hand. He searched for the owner in the dim haze, but without sight or sound cues, he was lost. Fingers closed around his hand and pressed his implant into his palm. He ran his finger along its wire and plugged it into the transmitter. It sound all right? He drank in the sensation of sound. I thought I wouldn't be able to hear sounds. How how can I? Because Carlos is a genius. It was Beth's voice, but somehow different, more distant. I just connected your mic to a radio transmitter so your modified implant can pick it up. How does it sound? Not bad, but there's an annoying buzzing sound. Where's the buzz coming from? I don't know. Everywhere? Dave found Beth's face just in time to see a worried look cross it. I don't like it she said. Is something wrong, Carlos? Code's fine. Dave stood and nudged radar in the direction she was facing. Could you dig up some spectrum analysis software? If you have a spectrophotometer lying around, you can probably scavenge its program. The buzzing intensified as he stepped toward Carlos. What's wrong? Dave imagined the concern that her voice must have held. The buzzing is getting louder. Carlos laughed. Oh, I get it. It's not funny. This time even Dave's implant could convey the emotion in her voice. Oh, no, I, I don't mean, it's just my laptop. He's picking up the magnetic field from the fan motor. The implant mod is working. Dave laughed. Well, that solves a problem we didn't know we had. What's that? We were so focused on getting me to hear what they're saying. We never considered how I was going to talk back. A crackle in his implant was Beth's indrawn breath. Oh, I get it. Set up a portable motor to run at your command. I can probably rig up an electromagnet, Carlos said. Let you control both duration and intensity. That takes care of the hearing end, Dave said. Now how about my spectrum software? You have more ideas? Dave nodded. I think they detect light in terms of emission patterns, like a spectroscope. What made you think? A hum cut her off. It's Renard she said. She had a brief conversation with her phone, ending with a shout loud enough for Dave to hear. This is wrong! You know it's wrong! She stuffed the phone angrily into her pocket. Now what? Military's kicking us out on UN orders. There is no more Canadian contact team. No. Dave hadn't realized he was going to say it until it was out. He felt the weight of silent stares. We're not giving up now. I'm not. He stood and grasped Radar's harness. Come on, boy. Where are you going? To make contact, even if I have to go back to the lander. Radar stopped and Dave reached out for the doorknob. His fingers wrapped around it and he pulled the door open. You coming, Beth? She hesitated a moment, then stood. I'm with you. Radar went tense. Beth's, oh, registered over a sudden hissing in his cochlear implant. He squinted at a large gray shadow scuttling toward him. Then Radar jerked violently backward and Dave sprawled on his back. The back of his head hit the floor with a shock of pain and a flash of light. The hissing in his ear gave way to the hollow sound of Beth slamming the door shut. Are you okay? Beth's voice, drenched in worry, came from above. Dave nodded, sending a wave of dizziness through his head. I I want to open the door. Are you sure? Help me up. He held out his hand and Beth tugged him to his feet. Oh, and could you hold on to radar for me? He's going to need a little time to get used to this. He shuffled forward, arms out, feeling for the doorknob. There. He closed his fingers around it, gripping firmly. This is it. Deep breath. He twisted the knob and pulled before he could change his mind. It took him a moment to find the alien standing before him. He had to look down to see it a dull gray carapace somewhere around the height of Radar's shoulder. A loud, crackling hiss sounded in his ear. Communication! But what the hell was it trying to say? Buzz, Hiss. Um, Carlos? Could you make some magnetic noise, some kind of pattern? Show what we're listening? From behind, an electromagnet hissed. Once, twice, three times. It's talking back to us, Dave said. But what was it saying? He had the urge to gesture, point to himself, and announce his name. Wouldn't help. They don't see the way we do. So now what? Beth, I don't suppose you have any gas discharge tubes in your lab? Why would I... No, I I don't. It can probably see my black body emission... I wish I could change my body temperature. Oh, you think they signal each other that way? Maybe. Hiss, buzz, hum. A burst of magnetic activity rippled down the hallway behind the alien. Dave thought he caught motion, little alien scuttling away. His alien turned and followed. What happened? Beth's voice was hushed, barely audible in his cochlear implant. I hear someone coming. Soldiers, I think. The aliens must have heard... Uh, detected them, too. A group of men rumbled by, their radios emitting a steady magnetic hiss. One paused in the doorway long enough for Dave's eyes to settle on the red leaf and dagger on his shoulder. Don't hurt them, Dave said. We're close to communicating. But he was now talking to the soldiers retreating back. Beth's hand closed gently on his shoulder. "'What did it say?' "'Magnetic pops and hisses, mostly. I couldn't talk back. When Carlos puts together that electromagnet thing, I'm going to try again.' "'You'll do no such thing,' Dave spun towards Renard's voice and found his hazy form filling the doorway. "'You don't understand,' Dave said. "'We can communicate using magnetic—' "'I know what you have been doing, and it's a promising approach.' We'll put together a detailed report for the U.N. contact team. No. Dave did his best to stand defiantly, but it was difficult to do so while clinging to the doorknob for balance. He missed radar. We're close to a breakthrough. Look, I know this stinks. Was that a touch of sympathy in Renard's voice? But the U.N. goons were clear. We are to attempt no further contact. But I don't like it either but I don't have a choice, and neither do you. Renard turned and vanished in the blurriness of the hallway. Dave slammed the door behind him. Beth's soft hand grasped his wrist and guided his hand to Radar's harness. He reached down and patted his back comfortingly. Now what? Now, Beth said, we get some sleep. Pack up and go home. It's over. No, it's not. We're too close to give up. ''But the CSOR is clearing the building. The aliens are gone. Then we'll go outside. You're serious, aren't you? Only if you're with me, Beth. Radar and I can't do this alone,'' she sighed. ''You realize we'll probably end up in prison. Radar will look good in an orange jumpsuit.'' ''I always knew you were trouble,'' she laughed nervously. ''Carlos, can you get the magnet device ready by morning?'' And some spectrum analysis tools? I'll work on it all night if I have to. We'll meet back here in the morning, then. Dave spent most of the night running contact scenarios through his head. Magnetic buzzes and hisses transformed into words. Words became misunderstandings, and weird alien death rays were met with the hail of bullets and bombs. He jerked awake, gasping soundlessly into the darkness. He reached instinctively for his cochlear implant transmitter. No, let it charge. He lay still, inhaling deep, calming breaths. I don't need it. Radar nuzzled his arm. Dave reached out and rubbed his head. We'll be okay, boy. He rolled over, and before long, his alarm vibrated beneath his pillow, dragging him from whatever brief sleep he had managed. He crawled out of bed and, still unfamiliar with the complex, stumbled behind Radar to the bathroom at the end of the hall. He found Beth waiting for him on his way out. Radar will have to step outside soon, he said. Can we check on Carlos first? He nodded and let her lead the way. They found Carlos right where they left him. Dave couldn't make out the details, but he imagined him slumped over his computer, rubbing bleary eyes. I've got a couple of surprises for you, he said. The electromagnet signaler, Dave asked. In response, Dave's implant picked up a short burst of magnetic hiss, then a longer hiss that rose and fell in intensity. "'Wonderful. How do you control it?' "'Through this tablet. The interface is kind of crude, but workable. I can make it pretty when I have some more time.' Carlos pushed the device into Dave's hands clumsily, with none of Beth's practice finesse, and nearly dropped it. "'Sorry.' Dave held the tablet at arm's length, squinting to focus on the screen. Beth adjusted the brightness for him. Better. He played a bit with the magfield on-off toggle and the intensity slider, listening to the crackling and hissing sounds in his implant. Did you manage to find some spectrum analysis software? Beth asked while Dave played. Pause for an invisible nod or perhaps a proud grin. I told you I had some surprises. Open the spectrum app. Dave scanned the screen and found a rainbow icon. He tapped it. Got it. Now aim the tablet at something and watch the screen. Dave held it up. The screen showed a magnified camera's eye view of Carlos's face, soft brown eyes, a shock of wavy brown hair, and a thin mustache beneath a broad nose. Superimposed on his face was a graph peeking in the deep infrared and a caption below it, Black Body Curve 310K. Oh, it may be a little buggy, but it'll be functional. The guys who wrote it are good with tight deadlines and pressure. This is amazing. Dave angled the tablet upward, taking in a view of the overhead fluorescent light. The spectrum showed sharp peaks of red, green, and blue, surrounded by a sea of lesser peaks. Emission, Mercury, Terbium-3, Europium-3. Absolutely incredible. Is that really what the world looks like to them? No, Dave said. That's the thing. They don't see at all. Not the way we use the word. Their sensory organs detect the spectral distribution, and their brains interpret it, probably in a way totally incomprehensible to us. And I would imagine the idea of seeing the way we do, shapes, textures, colors, is just as alien to them. But at least this, he held up the tablet, gives us a shot at finding common ground. Gives us a shot at finding common ground. Beth's hand closed on his shoulder ready to try it out you kids go have fun carlo said i'm going to crash for a few hours beth led the way to what had been a shipping and receiving area at the rear of the building where she hoped to slip through a trucking bay dave was climbing into a heavy snowsuit when a voice startled him from behind where do you think you're going dave snapped his head around and saw a man shape that had to be renard two larger shapes stood behind him soldiers or guards Uh, Radar needs to go to, uh, take care of business? Don't insult me. Okay, look. We're just going out to try... The hell you are, Beth spoke up. We figured out their senses, how they might use them to communicate. Did you really think I wasn't going to keep my eyes open? And even if I had been that stupid... Do you have any idea how many armed soldiers are out there between us and the aliens? You wouldn't have made it three steps. "'You have to help us,' Dave said. "'Why would I do that?' "'Because we can communicate with them. "'The UN guys can do that. "'Maybe after reading our reports "'and running it through a thousand committees. "'We can do it now, before they leave, "'before some idiot gets an itchy trigger finger. "'I'd be throwing away my career. "'It's the right thing to do.' "'Mailed!' There was a long silence as Dave imagined Bernard, dithering. "'You know we're on the right track,' Beth said. You know we're the best hope. Go. I'll buy you time. I'll tell them, I don't know, that you have orders from the Prime Minister, or maybe the Governor General. It'll take them a while to sort it out. Thank you, Dave said. Visit me in my cell. Looks like we're being shadowed, Beth said. Dave squinted but saw only bright sun glare. No one's moving to block our way? Nope, the path is clear. Whenever Renard told them, it seems to be working, he said. For now. Let's move before they change their minds. The day was bright and crisp, cold but with none of the biting wind of the last trip out. Radar maintained a brisk pace, following Beth's lead. Soon he topped a low ridge in the path, and the magnetic crackling in his ear intensified. He tried to pick patterns out of the noise as he walked. Beth closed a hand on his shoulder, stopped him in his tracks. Two of them are coming toward us. The bigger ones? Yeah. Hold under radar for me, he said. Beth's hand gently took the harness and Dave faced the aliens alone. A squawking hiss sounded sharply in his implant. Bzz. Dave held the tablet in front of his eyes and scanned the snowfield until he found a squat gray disc with too many legs. Black body curve 240K. I'm going to try to talk to it. He used the electromagnet to emit a short pulse, then two louder pulses. Then three, even louder. The alien repeated the sequence flawlessly. Briz, it added to the end. Black body curve, 250K. Its carapace was warmer. Was it flushing with excitement? I think Briz here is happy to meet me, he said to Beth. It told you its name? I don't know, but that's what I'm going to call him. Dave did his best to reproduce the Briz sound with his electromagnet. Briz responded with a warbling hiss, followed by a magnetic whistle. The second alien scuttled forward, and Dave stared, trying to decide how to describe the action. It held some sort of small device in one of its legs, partway back along the side of its carapace. Had it produced the device from a pouch or pocket in its environment suit, or had it been holding it the whole time? The alien transferred it from one foot-slash-hand to the next, moving the object smoothly forward along the side of its carapace then to Briz's nearest foot-slash-hand. Briz rippled the device forward until it was directly in front of Dave. The object was some sort of electronic device, asymmetric, with none of the gloss and polish of human devices. They see it as a spectral signature. Physical cosmetics are irrelevant to them. The device emitted a faint magnetic squeal and produced a pattern of pale blue and red lines. Emission, boron, "'Boron? What about it?' Beth asked. "'I don't know yet.' He repeated the squeal with his electromagnet. The spectral lines shifted hard toward the blue end of the graph. "'Oh. What is it? They want us to give them boron. He told you that?' Dave explained the blue-shifted spectrum. "'Get it? They want boron to come toward them.' That kind of blue shift would only happen at relativistic speeds. That can't be part of their everyday experience, not enough to show up in their language. I doubt it is. They're probably working just as hard as we are to bridge the communication gap, to express things in ways we can understand. Maybe. Keep talking. Dave used the electromagnet to reproduce the boron squeal, then followed it with the briz sound. I'm trying to tell him... "'that will bring him some boron. "'I wish this tablet could flash the boron spectrum. "'Sounds like a job for Carlos.' "'Briz repeated the squeal-Briz sound "'and flashed the blue-shifted boron spectrum. "'Squeal-Briz,' Dave confirmed. "'Briz's carapace radiated in excitement, "'almost reaching 260 kelvins. "'He turned and scuttled back to the alien encampment, "'followed by his companion. "'Beth's hand pressed Radar's harness into his palm.' He grasped it, comforted by the familiar tug. I did it. I actually talked to him. I never doubted you. The temperature gradient on her face shifted, her cheeks radiating several degrees warmer than the rest. A little white lie. You're not convinced, he said. They're just so different. How can you be sure that you understood what it meant, that it understood you? How can I be sure that you understand me? that my words truly convey what's in my mind. If Usher syndrome taught me anything, it's that communication is tenuous. There's never a guarantee. He fell silent, and Dave allowed Radar to lead him back toward the complex. He wondered how he'd convince Renard that he'd talked to an alien, that they'd entered the complex looking for supplies, not conflict. In a way, guys like Renard were more alien to Dave than Briz. He would never again see the world the way Renard did, or hear the same sounds. Usher syndrome had taken that away. The magnetic chatter of Briz's people faded as Dave rounded the crest. The magnetic hum of an incoming call rattled Beth's phone, and they stopped so she could answer it. While he waited, he held the tablet aloft and scanned the sky. It was a beautiful day, with very faint water absorption lines in the air. Beth clasped his shoulder. They sent a squad of soldiers to escort us back to the command post. They have a lot of questions for you. Dave searched the snowfield in front of him until he found their 310K blackbody emissions. He nudged radar toward them. Good. I have a lot of answers. <laughs>
3: There you go. Don't forget copyright is, Jay's. Jay, listen, thank you so much for that, Mark. Oh, stupendous. Big thumbs up to both of you, thank you. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Lots in there. You know what I mean? I'm chuffed a bit. Thank you so much for everyone that's kind of taking part. One bit more news as well. Tales to Terrify. You remember what we were doing? I kind of heads up, you know what I mean? It was kinda of hitting, it was gonna hitting the rocks a bit like what Starship Sova did. She's okay now. Just to Terrify audience and a few starships over audience as well. Stood up to the mark and kind of helped, you know, sort it out and make sure that show is up and running for the, the foreseeable future, which is lovely, do you know what I mean? And this is freaking, oh, my God. I had a chat with, and I recorded, I was kind enough to, to Celia, I was kind enough to record, Larry Santoro's wife, We just had a chat, you know, kind it's a year since Larry passed, and we've put it in the kind of Tales to Terrify feed, you know, just how she's doing, you know, what her thoughts, you know, possibly what Larry's thoughts would be on how Tales is doing now and that. So if you want to hear, you know, me talking to Cecilia about, you know, my good friend Larry, who was kind of the host of, or the original host of Tales to Terrify, it's in that feed there and it's lovely, do you know what I mean? It's, gosh, she's missing him so much, do you know what I mean? It's a cruel, cruel world, it certainly is. But, still be here next week. Until then, just like this say, good night from me.
1: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story. <laughs>